Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we wanna say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Sean M., Paula C., Michael G., and Gordon S. On the program today is a returning guest, Mr. Scott Melby has joined us. Scott is the president and CEO of Uranium Royalty Corp, a peer play uranium financing house that utilizes royalty and stream finance to assist developers and producers in the uranium sector. Uranium Royalty is listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol U-R-O-Y, as well as on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol U-R-C. Scott, thanks for coming back to talk to us. How you doing? I'm great, Andrew. It's always good to be on your program and uh, good to catch up. Lots of, lots of things to, to talk about. Very exciting times. Yes, it's been a while, Scott, since we've had you formally on the program and appreciate you coming back to chat with us briefly and talk a little bit about URC and a few other things. But how about we kick this one off with just you covering off the key issues in your mind, Scott, really how you see the uranium sector at this point, you know, we're July 2023 here, and really your outlook for the sector, say, for the rest of the year. Sure. Well, it's... um. There's a lot of milestones here. Um, August of 2023, next month, I reach my 40-year mark in the uranium and nuclear energy industry. And so it's provided me a lot of perspective through the years to see uh, how our industry has grown and progressed over, over this period. But I, you know, I have to say, looking at really three areas, I mean, clearly, the megatrend towards green energy and I would say failure of the green energy transition uh, has really caused uh, both political left, political right, industrialists, environmentalists, all to really embrace nuclear power. And I see that firsthand in my, my activities on Capitol Hill as part of the Uranium Producers of America. Um, you know, the supply and demand fundamentals right now have gone through previous cycles like the, the 20, two, uh, 2007 bull market and I see the fundamentals that are uh, coming together today are, are better than I've ever seen in, in 40 years. I mean, you have a structural gap of you know, 40, 50, 60 million pounds annually of production to consumption. Um, the production discipline that kicked in in 2017 is really um, continued in earnest and has had the impact of rebalancing the market only to have Sprott and other uh, investor vehicles like Zuri Invest and even just uh, companies like UEC and URC buying uranium off the spot market, which, you know, if there was any rebalancing left to be done, that clearly uh, vacuumed up remaining excess inventories off the market. So, you know, honestly, as we as we sit here in, in July of 2023, we are in a rebalanced uranium market. And I use the past tense doesn't mean there aren't still um, sort of churn volumes in the spot market that churn and, and create the daily volume in that market. But you've really gotten to the point where the, the big overhang of secondary and inventory supplies are gone and now going forward is very much gonna need to be a production driven market. So price formation will 
will be determined by cost of production, availability of production, ramp up of new mines, restart of, of, of old mines. And it, it really, you know, it means the Iranian market is kind of maturing and becoming more like, you know, established commodities like copper, silver, gold. Um, but we, you know, one thing that we don't have in this market that other commodities do is we don't have a lot of standby mine capacity or mines that are in, you know, ready startup phase that can meet that demand. There are a, a number of them and URC, you know, has invested in some of them and wants to invest in more of those. But, um, you know, I think we're going into a period of supply shock. I don't mean just tightening supply shock in 2024, 25, 26. Um, so the fundamentals, again, have never looked better. And then the third leg of the stool is really geopolitical. You know, I think this would be an exciting story without the developments in Ukraine and Russia. But I mean, that has really caused uh, Western uranium consumers to really look to uranium supplies that aren't under the control or influence of, of Russia and frankly, I think China uh, going forward. So it really puts a spotlight on American, Canadian, Australian, and some African producers that aren't under Chinese control really, I think, um, uh, earn a premium in, in this market going forward. So it really is exciting times. I mean, for, uh, for me to be involved in two companies like uh, UEC, where I'm executive vice president and have joined them you know, nine years ago and seen that company go from really a Texas startup with uh, smaller operations in, in Texas <clears throat> to now one of the fastest growing uranium mining and development companies in the world today is pretty exciting. And then the launch of URC uh, publicly in 2019 as a capital provider to, to mines and developers like UEC around the world really uh, is exciting. And I got to be honest, it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm having uh, more fun in my career at this uh, 40 years into it uh, than, I, than I've had. And that's, you know, with some pretty incredible experience at Uranium One, Cameco, because Adam Prom, you know, as a nuclear fuel buyer, uh, having more fun today than I've, I've had in, in the past 40 years. So it's exciting times. First, congratulations to you on the time in the sector, and you've been able to navigate through a pretty rough sector on a lot of different fronts. And so congratulations on the 40 years, and it's a good position that you're in, so a great setup you've got. I want to talk just briefly, and good overview, by the way, I just want to talk, come back to and just get a few thoughts on fuel cycle events, mm -hmm. but give us your, the Scott Melby opinion of you know, how green is green energy and how clean is clean energy. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we've always known that that it provided carbon-free, clean and safe energy. It's as clean and carbon-free and safe as wind and solar. But our technology runs, you know, 95% of the time, 24-7, 365 days a year. And, um, you know, that I, I think we've seen a lot of energy policies around the world be based too much on ideology alone and not enough math and science. And clearly nuclear is the math and science in, in the equation. And so it really is exciting to see, to see that acceptance. And it's most evident to me in the United States where you know, I, I spend a lot of time on the Hill lobbying on, on nuclear energy and uranium and fuel cycle issues. And in my entire career, I've never seen such bipartisan support um, you know, in the past, we always got support from the political right and conservatives 
who like nuclear as part of an all the above energy strategy, but the left absolutely abhorred us. And it, you know, was a, a hatred towards the nuclear industry that is kind of similar to the animosity I see from the left towards fossil fuels today. So to sit here in 2023 and be able to go into a democratic senator or congressman office and and be you know welcomed uh, the same way as we would on on the on conservatives and republicans on the right really opens the door for a lot of things and i think um you know licensing of new reactors we we still have you know there still are some on the very far political left <clears throat> that embrace nuclear power but don't embrace mining of anything and that would even mean for electric vehicles and and uh, you know the the green energy economy runs on nickel, lithium, cobalt, copper, uranium, and they're still on the far left that that don't want to mine the materials that provide all those great things in the green energy economy. But you know I think they're coming around to it. But basically the you know the support for nuclear power is is strong. I mean you see it recently in um, some of the Senate hearings to for uh, Commissioner Jeff Barron on the NRC where. There's been a lot of discussion is, is he pro-nuclear enough to be um, reinstated on, on the uh, NRC commissioner level? And I think, you know, if, if we get a situation where both Democrats and Republicans are encouraging their people that they're appointing to the NRC, um, you know, not to obstruct or slow walk nuclear power, but actually, you know, fast track SMR and advanced reactor uh, type, you know, licensing activities, then you know, I think we can see the growth, uh, you know, here in the United States, I know the first of a kind reactors are coming in, you know, the SMRs in Idaho, Wyoming, Texas, uh, up in Ontario with GE, Itachi, you know, these are very important. We have to build these on, on, on budget, uh, on, on schedule. And I think if we can demonstrate that success, there are thousands of these SMRs coming uh, in the next decade, 2030 to 2040. And so, we have, uh, you know, an industry today which, you know, the, the production consumption gap is largely determined by the large reactors that are in operation and the some 60 more that are under construction uh, today and more coming all the time. But wait till you layer on SMR demand. Each SMR doesn't use as much uranium as a big reactor, but when you build enough of them, it really provides something that we haven't seen in a long time. We're, we're used to the nuclear uh, growth and the uranium demand line being, you know, flat or even declining during the post-Fukushima era. And now we're seeing that grow again. So we have the gap, you know, growing not just from production cutbacks and shortfalls or, 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 or slow ramp up of new mines, but you're now seeing, you know, demand widen that gap. So as an industry, we've got to get busy. Um, you know, in the, in the West, I think we have to focus on moving away from Russia completely and, and permanently, frankly, and also guard against, you know, China. They are the fastest nuclear uh, uh, growth country in the world today. They're taking a very long view in securing their uranium supplies, whether it's in Kazakhstan and, um, you know, we should touch on, on, on come back to Kazakhstan because that is a huge elephant in the room right now that it maybe isn't focused on as much as it should. But Chinese gobbling up resources there in Africa and elsewhere. And so in, in the West, I think we need to look to really build up our uranium conversion and enrichment capabilities um, to be self-sufficient like we were prior to kind of opening up the market in, in a post-Soviet era. So exciting times, but yeah, nuclear power, um, 
it's not the only answer to our energy needs, but it's, uh, I think, becoming a real uh, key baseload source of 24-7 of green energy going forward. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to overlook, Scott, the, the high quality, high density nature of nuclear power. I mean, this is a, a very important piece of it. And, you know, it may not be the full answer, but it's a substantial answer. And it's probably one of the critical answers. Um, because there's just not a comparable form of energy that that I can think of that we've devised. We all hope for things like fusion in the future, but it's an uncertain time frame that probably you and I can't really have a line of sight to. But I want to come back, and I'm sorry to digress here. Mm -hmm. might, might irritate the audience a bit with some of my digressions, but you're well-connected in Washington. A lot of hot air flows out of there. Matter of fact, probably one of the biggest hot air carbon footprints I've seen. Uh, but just, just talk about... Uh, oil and gas, the coal lobby, these other companies that have a competing form of, of energy. Obviously, these are important sources of energy still today um, and will mm -hmm. be probably for quite a while, Scott, for the rest of our lifetime anyway. But, you know, a substantial force that is assisted to keep commercial nuclear power as part of a, a really a bigger mix. Just talk about that and, and just, you know, your thoughts on that strength of that lobby going forward and, and really the reality of a transition for these companies to start thinking about, hey, maybe we should consider entering this business. I mean, I haven't heard anybody talk Please. about ExxonMobil yeah. enter the nuclear power business. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know that that's a strong force there. Yeah, well, they've ExxonMobil, you know, has made investments now in, uh, in lithium. I'll answer first and then come back to the political question. But you know, I know it sounds crazy uh, because we've gone, you know, not that long ago from an oversupplied market where mines are shut in. There hasn't been investment in new mines. There hasn't been long-term contracting until uh, recently. I think you see a situation again, like we saw in the 70s, which was driven by the Arab oil embargo and, and uh, high oil prices. But I see oil and gas companies getting back into nuclear um, you know, there's already been some some discussions in, 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 in this regard, but I think, you know, for them, you know, oil and gas isn't going away. And I think we have to be realistic with that. And I don't think I give a, a energy talk anywhere in the world where I don't say, hey, the baseload of, of, of energy going forward, especially in places like the United States where we're blessed with natural gas, should be natural gas and nuclear. Uh, and then you have your wind and solar for whatever level you you want to subsidize and and provide for. But the bulk of the heavy load, if we are moving away from from coal and and we are, I hope you know in some places like Colorado where I live, it doesn't happen overnight, or I'm not going to have electricity, or it's not going to be very affordable. So I think you know coal is in that transition period out. But I think natural gas needs to continue to be a very important part of our mix and. Between that and nuclear and the intermittent renewables, I think you can have a very clean and and very uh, efficient and effective grid. So, I don't see ourselves as you know competing with with natural gas. I think we're a good complement. Um, we're not going to be 100% of of our electricity supplies, and so I think that needs to happen. And I think there is a movement. I do a lot of work with the European uh, Parliament Conservative members of the European Parliament, and I've talked to some members of Parliament in the UK, and they really see the smart green energy policy going forward as a heavy base of natural gas and nuclear as, as, as the core. So I think that's good. I mean, I know in the past, I think, 
you know, uh, oil and gas industry may view, you know, nuclear as a threat. I think maybe some renewable industry organizations may view nuclear as a threat because it works so well and it is so efficient. But I think, you know, we need to look beyond that and, and rather than trying to, uh, you know, shoot at each other, recognize that it is an all the above energy approach and all of us have something to contribute. So I don't see ourselves, um, you know, competing with the oil and gas uh uh, industry in that garden. In fact, I think I see more opportunities for cooperation. When, you know, when BP invests in wind and solar, I don't really think that's a complement to their core, you know, business. I think it's more to kind of soothe, you know, the the woke uh, crowd to put windmills on on their annual report and and appear green. But I think if they invest in in things like uranium in situ uranium mining, which is probably more similar to oil and gas drilling, collector well, you know, fields and header houses and, and such. I think there's a closer fit there uh, than there is with renewables. So that that's coming. And I also wouldn't rule out, and this may, you know, utilities may say, oh, no, that's not going to happen. But utility self-supply or major, you know, I mean, you see Westinghouse and investing, you know, side by side or chemical investing side by side with Westinghouse. I think it gets to a point where there is such a supply squeeze and availability of uranium is so critical that um, utilities that don't have the long-term contract coverage or comfort with that long-term contract coverage will make investments again directly in, in uranium mines and developments. And that may extend to, to uranium and con, uh, conversion enrichment as well. Um, you see it in you know GM and Chrysler probably said there's never no way they would ever invest in lithium mines. Well, we can see that, uh, you know, when you're faced with uh, a real resource competition with the Chinese and others around the world, um, you know, that investment can follow. So listen, that's not going to happen tomorrow, but, but I think it's coming. And it really yeah. speaks to the strategic nature of uranium supplies going forward. Yeah, great point, Scott. Utility partnerships, not anything new. I mean, we've saw this, uh, believe in the 70s and 80s. Um, yep. I think you would remember some of those partnerships that, that happened. It's an interesting piece in what you said too about some of these really, really heavy natural resource consumption businesses also saying that they don't want mining. Yeah. Um, I, I don't get how that works, man. I mean, even the math and the science don't back up those types of positions all for mining and natural resources in the sense that it's responsible and absolute with that free markets. And these big resource heavy consumers have to wake up and smell the roses just a little yeah. bit here. I mean, you know, there's obviously trying to sway public opinion and these things, but uh, come on, let's get down to reality. Yeah, we do it. We do it better in, yeah, I mean, in just take North America, you know, the, the regulatory standards and the health, safety, and environment, ESG commitments, that you know producers do here. I, I think you'd much rather have it mined here. And you know, with uranium, you touched on it earlier the energy density of nuclear power and uranium. We have an advantage in that, you know, it won't take a lot of mines, you know, to to meet this, you know, the footprint is relatively small. You know, I think the the expectations of you know lithium needs with electric vehicles and battery demand, it's a huge amount of mining activity globally. To, to meet that in a way that I'm not sure how it's actually going to happen. But with uranium, I mean, just take the United States. I mean, with licensed facilities already in place, it's not unreasonable to see the U.S. industry go from effectively zero in recent years with mines shut in 
to back to the 20, 25 million pound a year range with just mines that are already permitted, licensed in many cases you know, with existing infrastructure. So, um, yeah. you know, I think we, we uh, fuel cycles are advantage with our, our technology. And so we've, we've really got to embrace that. Yeah. I'll come back to fuel cycle in just a moment, Scott, get your thoughts also on Kazakhstan. I want to come back to that, but mm-hmm. the NRC, you've been involved with policy and, and a lot of the politics there in the United States. Is the NRC a significant constraint for build out in the US? And also with that, the timeframes. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen Russia, we've seen China, we've seen the French, the Japanese, the Koreans all excel at yeah. construction and regulatory. Why yeah, we got to figure that out. I mean, we can't, yeah. you know, we can't build these things in 10 years. They've got to be built in four or five and, you know, SMRs maybe even faster. So um, I do think it, you know, listen, I, it's no secret. I mean, in the past, uh, Democrats would, would appoint NRC commissioners to either kind of uh, tamp down nuclear growth or slow walk it. Or in some cases, you know, there were very anti-nuclear NRC commissioners and, you know, that was meant to kind of keep nuclear at bay. Um, if Democrats and Republicans see eye to eye on nuclear power growth and particularly SMRs, well, then, you know, NRC commissioners are appointed not not with the eye to cut corners on safety and 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 proper regulation of, of, of our industry, but take away the obstacles and the challenges to make that process go faster. And I think that really that that could be a key change for growth in new reactors in the United States and and ultimately uranium demand. Yeah, the government needs to be a partner. That includes the alphabet agencies. They need to be a mm-hmm. partner, and they need to be a business partner, and they need to look at it from that perspective and be able to get it done. Because you know, when other countries who are at least from the view of the U.S. inferior to what U.S. technology and U.S. regulatory is. You would think we could beat on budget, we could beat on time frame, and that just hasn't been the case for a number of decades now, Scott. And you and I, I think we've talked about this in length going back many years ago about how the U.S. should change policy. It looks like that started to happen, and we've even got our friends to the north, uh, the Canadian folks, also helping to lead that a little bit here with some recent activity up there. But why don't we set that aside, because we're here to mm-hmm. talk about some more detailed issues. Um, but how about fuel cycle constraints? Talk about this on the Western end of things, Scott, as you alluded to earlier, but just talk about the issues with conversion, with enrichment, and really what issues that stand out to you at this time. And then yeah. also, can you put a time frame on the time in which Western capacities are built out? Because I think this is something that won't happen this decade. Yeah. Listen, there's legislation before the House and the Senate you know, uh, bills have passed committee and Mansion Barrasso's Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee. It's passed through Kathy McMorris Rogers uh, Committee in the House Energy and Commerce that have uh, Russian uranium ban and various initiatives to revitalize the domestic American fuel cycle. Um, so, you know, that's good news. I mean, the, the committee di- discussions and negotiations are usually the toughest ones. So now it's really just finding, you know, time that in a, a right place for these bills to hit the floor for full votes. I think, you know, that if there's any remaining debate there, it's, you know, what is this going to cost and what is the right way to do it? But I think there's bipartisan support that we need to do it. 
and you know the way to do it i mean it could be you could follow the the lead of the strategic uranium reserve which was very slow and getting put up but did you know finally made awards at the end of last year and uh deliveries were made early this year which was really great it, it spread that benefit even at 75 million across to five different um, u.s uh, uranium producers and of course Converdine. Um, but that you know that model did work and i think you know when we're on the hill this week lobbying, we're gonna say continue. Whatever you do with conversion enrichment, which is a bigger, tougher nut to crack, you know that the strategic uranium reserve works and can feed into whatever solution you come for those uh, other fuel cycle components. But there's also a discussion that, well, okay, utilities may not wanna see uh, government competing with them in terms of purchases for scarce materials and, and commodities. Um, so maybe production tax credits are a better way. Maybe uh, cost sharing is is better. Maybe enrichment and conversion plants are more like building factories uh, as opposed to mining a commodity. So maybe cost sharing is better there. So I think those still need to be sorted out. But I think you know the, the uranium ban on Russia needs to happen. You know for for moral ethical reasons. Um, you know what Russia has been doing for over you know close to 16 months now uh, is appalling by by any measure. We don't need to be sending a billion dollars of, of nuclear fuel purchases their way each year. So on an ethical basis, we need to move on that. But on a business basis, the sooner we break our addiction to Russian uranium conversion enrichment, the faster we can revitalize and build up our own, not just US, but Western capabilities. Um, and, and I think that will happen now. The catch-22 is utilities don't want to step up and, and provide really big commitments to say the converters are enrich, richers for new contracts that would underpin these additional capacity expansions until they really know, okay, are, are we moving away from Russia or, or you know, is Putin going to apologize to Ukraine and make nice and then we go back to that reliance, which I think is a big mistake. We've learned a lesson here. We've had a near-death experience on Russian reliance on nuclear fuel, we need to move away. So I think the answer is clear, but I think until that happens, utilities are reluctant to step up and contract for new conversion enrichment contracts at the prices that are needed to, to support that build out. I think on the uranium side, it's already beginning. The utilities are contracting, you know, in very significant long-term volumes again. And remember, you know, long-term contracting over the past seven or eight years, if you look at those bar charts that UXC puts out of the total volume of long-term contracting each year. A lot of those volumes for the recent years have been carry trades with trading companies where the trader buys abundant spot supplies today, carries it on their books, delivers at a fixed price. Those weren't long-term contracts with producers, but that's happening again. And that is providing a nice underpinning for miners and developers to move forward and, and get back into production. But I think if you talk to the converters and the enrichers, they're ready to expand and willing to expand, but they need that commitment from utilities. So I think as an industry, we're gonna need to kind of, you know, step up here and, and move forward. But I, I honestly think it can happen. We dialed back our industry to make room for the Russians after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Um, now we just have to go back the other way. It's not like we don't have the technology or, or resources to do it. But I think it will be a Western solution. Europe, Canada, the United States uh, providing that 
um, Western nuclear fuel cycle. Yeah, lots of work to get done there, Scott. And it's quite a game being played, as you know, with uh, the Russia, Ukraine and U.S. involvement there and all the issues surrounding that, which uh, is for a different conversation. But how about we uh, move into URC here specifically? And how about you just give us, because it's been a while, how about just a quick update on the capital structure of the company in terms of yeah. shares outstanding, cash on hand, and if you don't mind, the major shareholders that you'd like to mention. Yeah, so um, we launched URC uh, publicly on the TSX Venture Exchange in December of 2019. So a couple of years prior to that, we, we kind of formed the company. I'm a, a co-founder. Um, we basically looked out at the huge industry, the you know, $50 billion industry that's become royalty and streaming in base and precious metals with companies like Franco Nevada, Wheaton Precious Metals, Sandstorm, Royal Gold, any number of these companies that have become so popular with investors as a pure play, um, diversified exposure to uh, particular commodities. Um, it also has become a, a real go-to source of development capital in those other commodities. You know, royalties and streams are no longer alternative finance in those industries. They're, they're go to right alongside debt and equity to build new mines in, in, in other commodities. We just, uh, it was amazing. We didn't have such a vehicle in our industry and maybe it's because we weren't building anything. We were, you know, if anything, you know, we've been shutting in mine capacity. We've been deferring new mine development. And so there, there wasn't as much a need for the company. So, you know, people might've scratched their heads when we launched, when we did, but boy, are we glad to, to have the company fully up and running and, and running on, you know, uh, full speed ahead in, in 2023, because we really are, um, you know, now positioned to be a capital provider to this next generation of, of mines and developments are going to help meet this gap. And, you know, we see it as a significant gap. I mean, it, if you assume the Cameco Arano mines are going to produce at full capacity, you assume because Adam Prom and, and Kazakh productions at 60 million pounds a year. Not sure whether it makes much of that makes it to the West or not, but it's uh, uh, certainly going to be at that production level. Um, we believe you need probably eight to 10 new mines uh, coming online between now and 2030 in Australia, Africa, US, and Canada. Now, not all these new mines are going to be 18 million pound a year mines, some are going to be one or two million. So hence, a lot of development needs to happen. UEC, you know, is, is, is well positioned to provide two production centers in, in, in that group in Texas and Wyoming. But URC, and, and this is the part of my job that I enjoy the most, is being able to come alongside this, this next generation of miners developers and provide the capital dollars they need to get into production or get over the hump with a uh, economic assessment or complete a well field or complete a, a plant a processing facility to get into production and so we're well positioned as we sit today um, you know we still are the the first mover in the space um, well positioned with a balance sheet of 147 million in cash and liquid assets so we can fund um, you know acquisitions without having to go uh, back to equity markets at this stage um, the physical uranium ownership, I can I can get into that a bit. 
uh, but that presents a nice asset that's appreciated uh, nicely since we've acquired those pounds. And it also provides, you know, we can turn those pounds to cash to, to fund royalty investments uh, as they come up. And then the existing portfolio, um, we have 18 royalties in the sort of inaugural portfolio that URC has. And uh, now, <clears throat> fortunately, we're seeing a lot of those mines uh, restart or come back into production, like MacArthur River, Cigar Lake, uh, Peninsula Lance, and Langer Heinrich. So we're getting back into a cash flowing uh, status again in, in 2023, and uh, and you know really focus now on expanding that portfolio. Um, a couple other things I'll mention. I mean, we we did launch on the Nasdaq two years ago and with the Uroy listing, and I will say that really increased our trading liquidity. We don't trade as liquid as UEC, which I think is the second most liquid uh, uh, uranium equity just behind Cameco, uh, but it did quadruple our trading volumes over the TSX venture. So that was a good development. And then last week we did uh, graduate to the TSX big board. So those are all great, great developments. Um, you know our, our share structure is 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 quite uh, quite lean and uh, you know with uh, 90 99 almost 100 million shares outstanding um, our our ownership structure I mean we have some of the foundational ownership obviously UEC being a major founder still owns 18 percent of the company but other you know uh, sort of corporate founding uh, owners like Altius and Mega vented in assets in exchange for for shares but we have a number of the you know we're we're in all the um, uranium ETFs um, in the you know a key holding of, of you know resource funds that are, are focused like commodity capital extract capital um, KCR some of these others that uh, you know have, have uh, been early kind of investors in the uranium space and we're making uh, a lot of inroads with kind of the generalist uh, institutional investors now as well. Um, I've been on the road much of this year, uh, either meeting with royalty counterparties to, to generate new business opportunities, like I just I've spent a, a week in Australia and Perth and Adelaide, meeting with all those miners and developers down there to see what are their capital needs, what do they need to get over the hump into production, and what can we do to, to help them but also meeting with institutional investors in Asia, Europe, and North America to really tell the, the URC story. And it, it really is resonating. It's, it's a bit of a, um, a diversified approach. Um, you know, uh, an investment in UEC is you're investing in, in those mines in, in Texas, Wyoming, and the development pipeline in Canada. It's very specific. With URC, you're buying a portfolio where in our 18... Uh, asset portfolio. Some are going to outperform our expectations, some are going to underperform, but hopefully if we've done our due diligence and we've uh, made the right accretive acquisitions, um, you know, we'll, we'll be uh, in a good position. And again, it is a, a growth platform. So look for, for growth. We have a number of, of files on the go right now. Um, and it, it, we do seem to be a good fit with, you know, as, as great as the uranium story and nuclear energy story has been, a lot of the uranium equities have been trading perhaps closer to their 52-week lows than their highs, which is, is crazy. And I think it speaks to just pressure of the broader markets and uncertainties. Is there a recession? Isn't there? 
regional bank failures, I think has really weighed on the uranium except, uh, sector with the exception of a couple sort of leading companies like Cameco, which hasn't really pulled back with the rest of the pack. Um, but, you know, it's not an attractive time for a minor developer to issue a lot of shares and maybe some, you know, even if their share price was higher, they've already, you know, uh, diluted to get to this, you know, to survive a 10-year bear market and get to this stage. So, you know, a, a royalty and stream may look pretty attractive and be the lowest cost of capital. Debt is another alternative. It, again, comes with a lot of covenants and, and strings attached and obviously higher interest rates today. So I think we are resonating. Um, some are opportunities just, uh, you know, miners, developers that had raised equity capital to get into production, but maybe need just a top up to get over the hump and into production. A royalty and stream makes excellent sense there. Uh, others maybe buying uh, plant and equipment in advance of when they normally would with supply chain challenges. And, uh, you know, we can almost become an equipment financer in, in those uh, instances. But uh, again, there's a, a number of opportunities of, of uh, restarts, new mine developments, uh, byproduct production that, that uh, give us a nice pipeline of opportunities right now. I want to come back to just, uh, just to stay a little bit on cap structure and broad overview, and then I want to dive back into a few things you said. There is this uh, comparison to royalty and streaming companies that URC has made who are primarily, of course, in another segment of the natural resource sector, and that's precious and base metals. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there's a scale up period, of course, uh, URC is kind of on the lower end of that curve, and, and people can refer to this because you've highlighted it in the uh, presentation. But, mm -hmm. you know, how similar do you think this is? Because uranium so specialty, and it's actually a few extra layers of difficulty. How similar do you think that comparison is, Scott? And do you expect more competition, too, in terms of royalty yeah. streaming startups as the uranium sector gains more attention? Well, if it is such a great structure and, and model and the right commodity, we won't be, you know, the, the only player for long. And so we do expect uh, competition at some point. Um, it is different than, you know, uh, the name of the game in, in gold and base metals royalty companies is you can go out and acquire another royalty and streaming company and acquire, you know, 15 assets with one M&A acquisition. So it's, uh, you know, we don't have that luxury of being able to just go out and buy a company and double our portfolio size. So we've got to go out and really dig. And But, you know, this is where our 40 years of uranium experience and, and you know, we have a very small team, but a number of um, folks that have been engaged in uranium exploration, uranium mine development, marketing, many of which with companies like Cameco for much of their career, um, we, you know, we, we get it. We get the risk return um, proposition that's offered in uranium. Um, we know how hard it is to license permit, get mines into production. We, we understand all that risk, but we're willing to take that risk, uh, you know, as a, as a pure play uranium company. So, um, you know, that, that, that's an advantage that we have, um, but it, but it does, you know, we've got to do our homework. Like I would say the Cigar Lake MacArthur River royalty acquisitions were a good example where, you know, it wasn't, you know, with the, the counterparties them, or the, the operators themselves, it was with uh, reserve oil and minerals that was engaged in uranium exploration in the Athabasca Basin in the late 70s, early 80s, was part of the discovery 
sold their interest to the provincial uh, and federal governments back in the day when, when that was occurring in the early 80s, but retained a royalty. And we knew that Frank Melfi in Albuquerque, New Mexico, he's 97 years old. I went down and saw him during the height of COVID and kind of Black Lives Matter uh, riots uh, in that summer and uh, went down and saw him, drove down to Albuquerque and saw him and, and made a deal uh, for those royalty assets at an $11, $12 million uh, acquisition, which, you know, that's the kind of homework and that's the, that's, you know, the advantage we bring. There are other known existing royalties that, that, that we're pursuing kind of in the secondary market to add to the portfolio. But I will say that, you know, of the five or six files we have ongoing right now, all of those are new financing. So they are providing fresh capital to a minor developer to get, get over the hump and into production. So um, again, it's a, uh, it's a great model for a great commodity at the right point in our uranium commodity cycle. Um, and I think, you know, if, if there's one challenge I have, it's really educating CEOs and CFOs on the value and benefits of royalty and streaming over debt and equity. I, a lot of what I do is kind of educating and there may be a perception that, oh, well, so we'll come to you for a royalty and stream if we have no other alternatives or, or not great alternatives in debt and equity. And we're like, no, we'll actually structure every mine uh, and development is different as, as different risk uh, profiles and, and discounts applied to it. But we'll tailor something against the developers, other sources of capital and come in as the most competitive source if we can. I mean, if might not be able to given some circumstances, but we will tailor our proposals to be the lowest cost of capital. So that's a big education. And that's why I've been out on the road, um, you know, made the rounds through Australia. I hope to get to Africa and do the same, you know, uh, later this summer, early fall. Yeah, Scott, I think you're going to need every bit of that cash you do have on hand because, as you <laughs> know, some of these transactions that are coming down the pipe are multiple hundreds of millions of dollars if you want to be able yeah. to obtain some of these deals. And it sounds like you guys are portraying yourselves as good as a bank, if not uh, potentially better on competition with interest rates where they are today and, and so forth, I suspect. And because you guys are the only one in the sector and you're aggressive, I suspect those that competition, you know, if someone's going to seek a proposal from a bank, then why not seek a proposal from URC is what I would probably suggest. And then the other part would be just the consolidation of these royalty portfolios. As you yeah. said, there's a lot of individuals and just unknown companies out there that are dormant that have these royalties. And yeah. it makes sense from a competitive standpoint to consolidate those there's even a handful of companies in the sector, as you know, that hold a little yeah. bit of royalties on different projects that can be consolidated into URC as well. So that's pretty interesting in, in the sense that there's a lot of things you can actually do with it. It's a flexible vehicle. You talked about, you know, competing with uh, you know, Caterpillar, Komatsu Equipment Finance, et cetera, for maybe equipment purchases, long lead times, which you and I both know are a big deal and you should be doing your homework on lead times for processing equipment and so forth in this day and age. Just speak briefly about you know, I know the company's growing and that there's kind of this fixed overhead to start out here. But, you know, one of the attractions for investors is that, you know, as these royalty stream companies grow, that generally the fixed cost of overhead stays the same. Uh, the staff's generally small. Yeah. You know, just talk about that bit and specifically. Yeah, that's a big see. advantage. And, you know, our, our team is, is quite small. We really five employees. 
um, some of which are are are, are shared uh, responsibilities. We you know we have um, as an advisor, for example, we've got James Hatley who can come alongside us and do due diligence when we're looking at potentially investing in um, a conventional mine operation. And you know, for a guy who is a mine engineer at Cameco with MacArthur and Cigar, that's huge valuable resource. But he's available to us. He's full time at UEC. Um, Darcy Herskorn, uh, our, our ch uh, chief technical officer, spent over 20 years in global uh, uh, exploration with Cameco and performs the resource assessments and, and determines did the company do the right, um, you know, apply the right processes and oversight and governance on, on their drilling programs to determine the resource and everything else. So we've got them, but you know, this small team. Uh, and our and our small board that is a very uh, active board, or you know, they're, they're providing great counsel to us. Um, we can triple, quadruple in size and not have to add significant staff. We don't own the mines. We don't have the huge workforce. We don't have the land holding costs. We just have to make sure that we do the due diligence, and we, um, you know, out of the the universe of potential counterparties, we align ourselves with with the winners in in that group, and so. It is quite nice. I mean, I think our our GNA, you know, will will be in the you know two to four million annually range. It depends on how much um, IR activities we have, how much uh, due diligence uh, we have. We've kind of got some uh, costs that that are pretty steady, like uranium holding costs and storage costs for physical uranium that we hold at Cameco. But it's a really effective, um, and you know, our goal in the near term is to really obviously. Uh, get get into the cash flowing stage, uh, cover our our GNA costs, and then you know all the deals we do after that are all gravy and and adding free cash flow. And that's where you get. I mean, I I'm so envious when I look at the mature royalty companies, and you know to be in that position where they're they're throwing off so much cash. I think when you measure the 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 uh, cash generated per employee, these are the most efficient companies in the world uh, in that regard. And so that, those are the models. And listen, when I took on the CEO role in 2019, uh, I'm a uranium expert. I spent my whole life in uranium, but I wasn't a, a royalty and streaming expert. So I really dove into uh, essentially almost the case studies of all the other major royalty companies and try to determine, okay, what did they do right? What are the best practices? What did they do wrong? And try to to really position URC to to not reinvent the wheel, but just take the best practices in base and precious metals and bring it to uranium. It is an interesting model and it's it can work out pretty well, especially if you can load the portfolio with stuff that actually will cash flow out here within a reasonable staged set of timings that come into mm -hmm. that. But actually, I want to get to that for just a moment and get your thoughts on where you see the immediate income sources, maybe talk immediate and, you know, immediate being maybe say over the next 18 months in this sector is, yeah. is immediate in my mind, but maybe midterm as well. What do, you, what do you think are the sources to come? Just talk about maybe some of the counterparties and when you see in those come online. Sure. Um, and before I get into the the the, the uh, royalty assets, I'll just touch briefly on the physical uranium investment because obviously that can be a source of cash and pretty significant profits. Um, uh, when we launched the company, uh, you know, we we realized that you know even with the existing royalties that we put in the inaugural portfolio, 
was going to be a while until you know they started to cash flow. We had an industry where mines were shut in for good reason. We're quite happy for them to be shut in, but now you know 2023 we see a number of those assets coming back into production and cash flowing. But we we needed to really provide value to the early shareholders, and we decided to give them exposure to. Uh, physical uranium near the bottom of the cycle as we were coming off the bottom of that cycle. And so our, one of our first investments was an almost 10% share of Yellowcake PLC out of London. And with that came strategic, uh, not only gave us uranium effectively at $20 a pound or, or, or less, it gave us rights to purchase uranium from Kazatomprom under their long-term arrangement. Uh, we did that. We tapped some some pounds there. Um, and have since made open market purchases, uh, which amount to uh, over 1.5 million pounds to date at a weighted average cost of $43 per pound. So already, you know, that provides a nice um, uh, asset on the balance sheet for us. We've got additional offtake materials coming in from uh, CGN, who operates the Husab mine. Deliveries begin later this year, but uh, that's a three-year Offtake, uh, it brings in 500,000 pounds at an average cost of around $47 a pound. So we we are realizing the capital appreciation of that on our on our on our balance sheet. Um, you know, when it comes time, we can turn that to cash. Obviously, we'll be very uh, disciplined sellers of that into into market strength and and not to impact things negatively. These aren't huge volumes, but we'll be very careful in in that regard. But then, you know, if you get to the to the royalty assets themselves, I mean, the first um, one I'll speak to, uh, two that I'll speak to are MacArthur River and Cigar Lake. So with MacArthur and Cigar Lake now back in full operational status, whether they were shut in for market reasons or COVID reasons, that period's over and they're ramping up to, to higher, if not full production levels. MacArthur River is an interesting one in that we have the ability and we've elected that right to take physical uranium um, payment under the royalty. So uh, we're accruing uh, pounds to our account as we speak and, and we'll take book transfers of that value at um, Blind River uh, each year and maybe twice a year. The value of that royalty alone at, at current prices and current production levels is a little over a million dollars a year. Uh, obviously, it will go up as, as uranium prices go up. Uh, Cigar Lake royalty is a net profit interest, and it will ultimately be bigger than the MacArthur royalty. But as it is a profit interest calculation, there still are some expense bucket, if you will, has to be drawn down before that happens. So the more Cigar Lake produces at the higher prices it achieves, the faster we get to our cash flowing state, but it will be bigger than MacArthur at that stage. And that I would say it, you know, within three to four years that these two royalties are, are, are throwing off, I would say $5 million, all depends on production levels and, and uranium price could be significantly higher if uranium prices take off. Um, another royalty asset we have in Saskatchewan is not a near term cash flowing royalty, but it is, seeing value crystallize and that's the close to two percent nsr we have on rough rider and um, you know that asset held in rio tinto's hands acquired for over 600 million 
you know, they'd done 100, 150 million in mine development and kind of early development activities or, or licensing activities. Um, that project has new life under UEC and much more focus to make Rough Rider part of a, a, a hub and spoke, if you will, of operations in the Eastern Athabasca Basin. So we probably will see royalties coming sooner under Rough Rider uh, than they were under Rio, uh, with UEC than under uh, Rio Tinto. U.S. ISR royalties, we, we have interests in Reno Creek, Lance, Dewey Burdock, and Church Rock. We're obviously very high on U.S. ISR for the reason that these are some of the most readily restart mines in the world today, have low capital costs, low operating costs. They're not the world's biggest mines, but they're profitable mines in, in this environment. And so, you know, Reno Creek obviously figures into UEC's hub and spoke in Wyoming with Irrigary Processing Plant only 30 miles away. Uh, Lance is in the process of restarting uh, their operations uh, this year. We have a, a pretty comprehensive royalty there. We increased our royalty in, in interest there in the last uh, 18 months. Did the same with Dewey Burdock. We had a fractional royalty there that we acquired a more wholesome or, or, or more uh, comprehensive royalty on Dewey Burdock when uh, Encore moves that project ahead. It's uh, again, it's at their their timing, not ours. And then uh, Church Rock in, in New Mexico. Um, conventional royalties, uh, moving to Namibia, we have a royalty on the Langer Heinrich mine, which everyone knows is going through a very significant Recommissioning, if you will, of that mine that has produced several million pounds uh, through the years, uh, now being restarted under kind of improved economics and uh, reconfiguring some of the mining and, and metallurgical processes to lower the production cost there. It's a good time. They went through all those uh, activities and now have the benefit of a higher uranium price as well to sell into. But uh, with them restarting in the second quarter of next year, we'll start to see cash flow under a fixed royalty under under that operation. And then their, their Michelin uh, project in Labrador, obviously a longer term uh, tuck away for us, but is a hundred million pound asset that in a bull market again, will start to take, uh, take shape. And then we have a whole slew of um, seven royalty interests in conventional mines on the Colorado Plateau, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, we've got the Anderson project, Anderson and Workman Creek in Arizona, Roca Honda in New Mexico, Slick Rock in Colorado, Whirlwind Energy Queen in San Rafael in uh, Colorado and Utah. So um, these are projects that, you know, the economics of, of conventional uranium mining is different than, than ISR, but does benefit from milling capacity, you know, with energy fuels blending mill in, in the region and the benefits of vanadium production and rare earth minerals. So we're quite happy to have, have those royalty holdings uh, in the mix. So uh, again, that's, that's where we're at presently. And you know, again, a lot of our activities in terms of new royalties are focused on projects that can either, um, uh, either restart or start up as a new operation in this cycle and start cash flowing, or if, they're not going to be immediately cash flowing our operations that will see a real advancement in their business models in a in a bull market that I believe we're in the first inning of right now. So very active with the, uh, those various 
miners and developers around the world, and we'll see where we can, how quickly we can grow the grow the portfolio. Yeah, Scott, it's a good start, and you and I both know there's a handful of other royalties out there that I know you guys are going to pursue quite hard, and good luck with that. And I think it's a good start up here to just highlight that Langer Heinrich would be one, uh, MacArthur River, Cigar Lake. These are something that's definitely coming down the pipe to you guys as well. And then you, of course, have a few assets that are restarted in the U.S. that you guys have exposure to, near-term cash flows that'll start to come into the company. And I wanted to ask you just to come back to two other things. The strategic partnership with uh, Yellow Cake and the option to purchase pounds with them. Talk about that briefly. And then also with regards to offloading some pounds that you guys have in inventory to potentially help finance some of these bigger deals that you would be looking at, Scott, which are, you know, 300 million north that you guys will want a, a good chunk of. Mm -hmm. um, just talk about the need to really offload that into the spot market versus potentially offloading it to a counterparty like a utility. Yes. So in terms of, of sales, I mean, URC is very much unhedged by nature, right? Our, we want to give our investors exposure to the commodity and all of its upside. So we probably wouldn't sell those pounds into a contract that might cap the upside, whether it's base price or market related with a ceiling. But, um, you know, with 40 years of experience in this business, I do have a lot of relationships with the utilities, with traders, with financial players, even new, you know, players emerging in the SMR space and elsewhere. Um, you know, we'll take a very, I would say, a very sophisticated approach to selling just as UEC uh, does and will and on, on their side, where, you know, we'll be much more spot market aligned and focused uh, doesn't mean that we're we're not dealing with utilities or sort of those those type players, but we're more focused on getting the highest price for our investors rather than hedging someone's upside risk. That's not our that's not our job. So, you know, we um, uh, you know don't see that as a problem with the spot market. You know, trading anywhere from you know 50, 80 could be 100 million pounds in a year. And uh, new players like Sprott coming into the the game, we we really don't see that as a challenge, uh, uh, converting those those pounds with Yellow Cake and Kazadam uh, Prom. We've we exercised, I believe it was three hundred and fifty thousand uh, pounds under that arrangement uh, a couple of years back. I want to say, yeah, the the total option is uh, up to what twenty one million US total so that would be the total that we have uh, option rights on less what we've purchased so we can we can tap that for additional pounds i don't know how that would work today with transportation logistics with with kazadam prom and you know they're having a challenge i think making their existing commitments to western companies with the caspian sea armenia georgia trade route um, so i don't know uh, what that would look like today and, you know, I mean, that, that touches on the other point with Kazan Prom. I, I think between Russia and China and the investments and the and the control that they exert in that country, uh, they'll continue to be the world's largest producer. But I think much of that uranium goes to, to uh, those two neighboring countries rather than the West. And that's the elephant in the room, I think, is that we're all focused on Russian sanctions and when will there be a ban? I mean, I think, you know, the world's largest uranium producer in a bifurcated market really isn't for the West's benefit. And 
if you don't believe that, just ask the Russians, and I'm sure the Chinese, you know, would would, uh, would uh, tell you too that uh, that is their focus of securing those assets that aren't under the control of the EU, of the UK, or the US. So it works both ways. Um, yeah. Does that answer the question? No, and I agree with that. It's it's clear that the alignment is there with Russia and China, and it's a risk. It's a big risk. If you're in the country, that's a big risk operating there. Any Western company that's operating there would, would want to be careful about how they approach that relationship. And then also just just the sheer time frame is going to require it capital to get back to that production state that we witnessed over the last, you know, call it the last decade or, you know, going back a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of capital there, not to mention the significant depletion that's happened there. So, uh, it's going to take time to get that going again. And, and then the management changes, Scott, you're seeing this, all the management team being changed out. And I mean, I listen, I work, I work there. Um, if anyone doesn't believe that Russia has influence over Kazakhstan or Kazatomprom, I got news for you. I mean, that's the reality. And yeah. it doesn't mean that Kazakhstan isn't an independent country, but, but they have two very big neighbors who, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a pro and a con for them. Yes, they have two big neighbors that that covet their uranium supplies, but that's also a positive. They also have two very captive markets there that don't require transportation challenges like, you know, like they face getting stuff to the West. So, you know, they will continue to be a major global uranium producer, but much of their production is going to those two countries, which is different than where we envisioned things going a few years back with, you know, opening them up to the West. Right. Yeah, take advantage, of course, I know you will to the best of your ability with obviously maintaining the relationships, because I know there's a lot that goes into discussions here, but acquiring whatever pounds you can acquire at today's prices are probably still going to be quite suitable and mm-hmm. take advantage of that. And, you know, we talked a little bit about some of these bigger deals that I think, Scott, are going to come across your desk or, or mm-hmm. you know, as you said, you've already talked to a number of folks and have posed what you guys can do uh, for them on some of these bigger development projects. But let's say, for example, you know, let's say a developer's putting together a financing package of 300 million US dollars to build out a project. And there's a couple of projects that would fall into that number. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they come to URC and let's say there's a deal to be struck, you know, a, a good juicy deal for URC that maybe takes down a hundred of that, hundred million of yeah. that. Um, how would you approach this in terms of you guys have existing cash, you have some uranium inventory that you've profited on already, but then mm-hmm. also you've got the equity, which is going to be difficult. Raising equity today is a little more difficult than what you would expect later on in the cycle when URC is trading higher. But how would you couple piecing together a juicy, bigger deal that would potentially see cash flows back to URC uh, in some cases within a couple of years? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the average, call it ticket size of, of some of the opportunities we're looking at right now or anywhere from... 10 to 50 million dollars for each each opportunity but there are the 100 million dollar opportunities as well and with those we're probably not going to be the only source of financing we're going to be part of the capital stack so those bigger developments are going to tap debt they're going to tap tap equity and and royalties and streams and you know with the bigger opportunities you know we we may need to get you know uh creative and more of a structured finance approach and potentially bring in partners that, you know, who's to say we can't provide a, an element of royalty and stream and come alongside with an equity investor as, as a package deal. So that's, that's definitely uh, the case. Um, you know, the uranium can also be 
um, you know, uh, doesn't necessarily have to be sold. It could be valuable to some of the potential miners developers, you know, as they, you know, are, are, are getting into production. Obviously, they value the cash to build the mines, but, you know, the, the uranium can be a currency as well with some of those opportunities. So we're looking at that. I mean, listen, we're um, uh, make no bones about it. We're trading, you know, anywhere between 0.5 and 0.6 P to NAV right now you know, very similar to UEC at a, at a similar level. Um, whereas royalty companies tend to trade, you know, at a, at a premium to NAV and that's part of the, the success. So, you know, we aren't eager to sell more shares here to do more deals. You know, we want to be, you know, when, when we're trading at a premium to NAV and can raise capital and make accretive transactions, that's, that's the secret sauce. Now, wasn't that long ago, Two years ago, we were the best performing royalty company in the world, even better than than the base and precious metals royalty companies. And we were a top five uranium equity in terms of our our uh, our gains in, in that year. So uh, believe we're, you know, we'll be back at those levels. I think there is kind of a wet blanket on on the uranium equities, which is ironic because the, the industry has never been in better fundamental shape and the and the well-positioned companies have never been better positioned to take advantage of that yet. You know, they're, it's not being, re, you know, recognized in the equity share prices. And I think once the broader markets, it's so skittish, it's just, yeah, I realize the NASDAQ's up, but it's on, up on a lot of uh, kind of a smaller number of AI tech stocks that have really driven that index. I think when the, when the broad market, you know, investors have that confidence that we're, you know, we're, we're, we're moving past recession fears, bank failures, all the things, interest rates that have really, you know, kept things down. I think you have a rally in uranium equities that, you know, will rip your face off. And, you know, obviously some companies are going to do better than others. And I, I believe I'm involved with two of those companies. But, you know, that will be a time where, you know, we can raise equity again, you know, to replenish. But what's nice is in the near term, we can bite off, you know, of the of the files we have in front of us. Who knows whether all of them come to fruition or none of them do? But we can finance, you know, a number of these with our own balance sheet. And it's only if we're super successful that that we might have to come back and raise more equity. But hopefully, that's in a a better uranium equity environment. Yeah, I think that's well said, Scott. And I think the strategy you guys have thought through this quite a bit on how you're going to approach this. I want to move on to just a few other things, Scott, before we wrap up. There's a few other topics that I wanted to bring to your attention and get your thoughts on. As you mentioned, you guys have had a number of approaches and you've approached a number of companies out there, whether it be restart developers as well as developers of new uranium projects, which you, know, mm -hmm. you and I know a number of those as well. And All of these projects have their problems. But you've also looked at them from a technical and expertise point of view, you know, given yeah. your expertise and, and your long time uh, in the sector as well. Coming back to what you said earlier about, you know, the potential for maybe eight to 10 mines. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming that's both a combination of restart and also new build. But what are your thoughts on the companies actually getting over the finish line, Scott? Because this business of production is very difficult. Yeah, it's, uh, well, honestly, the, this is the, the best part of my job, though, is to look out at that universe of those companies. And I can't tell you how, uh, you know, engaging it is to sit down with the CFOs, CEOs, and say, okay, what, what actually do you guys need to, is it, is it completing the, the central processing plant? Is it a potential, uh, you know, maybe it could be a cost overrun due to inflationary 
um, developments since you know the original cost estimates were made, or you know, is it is it uh, uh, you know developing a certain part of the mine mine plan, and and being able to say, okay, here's here's the 30, 40, 50 million dollars to come alongside that. Um, do I think we can build those eight to ten mines? I I actually do. I just don't think it's going to be fast. And you know, some of the fastest mines to respond are frankly in the U.S. with ISR. And you know, we didn't really talk about about you know UEC's activities, but with Ready Start existing infrastructure in places like Texas and Wyoming, these are mines that can come on quite quickly. But again, they're one to two million pound annual production. Um, you know, I think in Africa you have you know a slew of of, of of developers in Namibia, in Mauritania, in Niger, that are really advancing the ball. And you know, whether it's a global atomic <clears throat> with the DASA project um, in in Australia, you have obviously you know projects like Honeymoon that are really screaming ahead towards you know restart of those product you know production and Langer Heinrich as well. But even like you know restarts like Langer Heinrich and honeymoon required significant capital investment in many cases in both those cases reconfiguring the mining and metallurgy of those projects from what was used previously so um they have an advantage as a restart but they still you know they still have a lot of work and, and capital to deploy and so you know this isn't easy none of these mines are easy but um but i do think they're yeah <laughs> There are a couple mines out of those eight to ten where I, you know, it's hard for me to kind of identify. Okay, well, who is that? And that's, you know, there are a number of projects out there at in a development stage that need to step up. And you know, some of the bigger ones in in Canada obviously are not going to be immediate producers, but by the time they come on, that production's needed, and that means, you know, whether it's Denison's Wheeler River or next gen's arrow uh, you know those are bigger mines but by the time they come on that production's needed that that will be needed to fill the gap it's not we used to think of those projects as oh my god what happens if they come on and they're going to create oversupply no like they're needed in the gap with mines like octala and obviously ranger and 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 uh niger mines shutting it you know basically reaching the end of their mine life we need to replace that even in in canada i mean cigar lake phase one you know is coming to an end in this decade whether they go to phase two or not is to be determined but even you know the world's biggest mines don't go on forever and so that next generation needs to needs to step up i agree with your viewpoints on this in the sense that you know, a lot of people still think that, you know, things like NextGen are somehow going to impact this market. It just, I don't know that the timing lines up right. There's just this this thought that somehow NextGen's going to put 29 million pounds into the market in a couple of years. You and I both know, I, we've been here long yeah. enough, you way longer than me, know that these things never, never go perfectly. And this is a record setter, by the way, and, and setting yeah. records of production, lead time, construction time frames, and large capex. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of records to set. So yeah. it's a difficult one to get a pin on, you know, who's able to get there, the technical problems with some of these projects, the the risk tolerance with respect to the jurisdiction and all the other issues we talked about. A lot of these 
need to be dusted off again and recosted with respect to the economic studies. And there's just a lot That's of pieces. That's certainly that true. This. I mean, if the economic study is more than, you know, three or four years old, it's, you might as well throw it, throw it away and redo it because it, everything's gone up. I mean, UEC's seen that in, in Texas and Wyoming. Fortunately, there's still you know, at, at all in cash costs below 40. So, uh, you know, it, it's still, it doesn't price projects out of the market, but it, it, they're not as low cost as they were originally envisioned. Right. Okay. I'm going to come back to UEC in just a minute, but just one more question here on URC, Scott, mm-hmm. just talk about some of the community relations, government policy, wisdom transfer work. I mean, this, this industry is aging, let's be honest. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about that work at URC's level to bring up new talent, technical talent preferred, of course, just general skills, because normally a lot of this work is being done at the counterparty level, Scott, yeah. not necessarily at the royalty streamholder level, but just talk about that side of it. Yeah, we're, um, we're not even joint venture partners, if you will, in these projects, we're royalty holders. So a lot of our, a lot of our technical work is done in the due diligence of, of, of deal formation, but it's very important that, and sometimes it's a curse and it's a blessing because we get it. We, you know, unlike a bank, which may not understand everything fully, we get how long it takes to permit a line. We know the, the challenges, we know the geopolitical risks. So sometimes that causes us to discount a project maybe more than someone else would. But there's other times where we see value, um, you know, or maybe believe in value that even more than 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 what the the operator has in, in certain cases. So um, it's really just, you know, technical people and on our team, people like uh, James Hatley, Darcy Hurstcorn, um, uh, you know, some of our, our our board members that have brought you know, decades of, of uh, capital markets experience. I mean, I mentioned Neil Gregson, who was uh, the head of JP Morgan's Global Asset Management Resource Fund. Enormous resource for me to go to when we're looking at, at, at approaching or, or closing a, a, a royalty deal. So uh, yeah, it is a big concern. I mean, for the, the miners and developers, um, it is it is very important, and and you know we are facing now competition amongst miners, developers for plant equipment, drillers, uh, technical people. Um, some places, I mean, I talked to a um, you know a Niger producer recently. They said, no, we don't have a problem because the last generation of mines, you know, are shutting in, but but we're now providing jobs to people who are out of work. So it's you know there are also opportunities in that. And I think, you know, sorry to come back to UEC, we were always very cognizant of the knowledge transfer. So even though we, you know, contracted dramatically in the in the bear market and really went to kind of survival mode in those years, we retained our real key mine exp- or, uh, exploration, mine development operations, permitting and licensing people. Um, and even if some of those are getting up in years, we made sure that we, we, brought in, you know, someone from Texas A&M to, to work and study underneath them to learn everything that they've learned throughout their career. So when they do ultimately retire, you know, we've got continuity and that's hard. Bench strength's hard in, in, in low market price environments, but, you know, I think companies that have done that will really have a, a leg up. That's the biggest thing we need is this technical talent replacement and that wisdom transfer 
because you've just got so many other factors that are weighing against that, whether it's be undercapitalized markets, you know, stubborn people, let's be honest, these types of things that uh, really impact this piece of it and real expertise on the ground. And, and we know how much that is important because those people make the people look in the chairs a little bit smarter. So anyway, let's move on here. Let's talk UEC just a moment here. Um, you're the executive vice president over there at Uranium Energy Corp, of which has a strategic relation with URC. Uh, just talk about what conditions in your mind that you can share on uranium price, maybe the contract book that you think UEC would look to restart production. Yeah, well, it's an understatement to say the last 18, 24 months have been exciting because it, it really, uh, you know, we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, when I joined the company, this was a small Texas startup. And now, you know, one of the fastest growing uranium companies in the world with multiple hub and spoke production centers. But, you know, over this 18 months, they've made as uh, close to 560 million in accretive acquisitions between Uranium One, UEX, and Rough Rider. Um, that's tripled the total resource uh, that the company uh, controls and a four times increase in licensed production capacity. Uh, not to mention providing a now a longer term production pipeline in in Canada, particularly the Athabasca Basin. So it's uh, it's an exciting position to be in. So where we sit today with uranium price at 56, um, UEC has been quite unique is in that uh, we've decided to be and maintain a 100% unhedged approach to the to the book. We just feel that <clears throat> given our size and our sorts of financing that, that we have able to, you know, with a strong balance sheet of, of 125 million in cash and liquid assets, um, we're not building a $2 billion underground mine that produces 20 million pounds a year where it is gonna make sense to have some of that contract, uh, some of that uh, production under contracts and de-risk. We wanna preserve all the 100% of the upside of our production, which starts out uh, listen, very small, one to two million pounds a year in, in Texas and Wyoming, um, you know, ramping up to four to five million pounds over four to five years under, under the right conditions. That's very easily manageable in not just the spot market, but through those strategic relationships that, that have built up through the years where we're selling at, <clears throat> at spot, not a premium, not a discount, but spot. And uh, we're finding that utilities are uh, understand that approach. And I think, you know, they, they welcome that, that not all, you know, a lot of producers are locking up 100% of their sales commitments, of their production commitments under long-term su uh, supply commitments, which is great. That de-risks the asset and that that's a very stable cash flow coming in, but it also hedges the risk of the utility. It, it robs investors of 100% of the upside that we want to provide for them. So, UEC has said we'll get into production at $60 a pound. We'll come out with some more clarity on that in, in the coming weeks where we've been extremely, you know, we've been de-risking the assets for some time, but we've accelerated the, the uh, restart activities at Irrigary Christensen Ranch, where we have, um, you know, obviously looking to restart mine units seven, eight, and nine at Christensen Ranch and, you know, basically completing the drill program this month in new modules in mine unit 10, and then also building out approval to spend the money to build out those 
modules, which means uh, two additional header houses and the well field drilling. So, you know, we basically have a situation where, you know, we've said all along that the restart at uh, in Wyoming is less than six months. That's even lessened with the activities that we've taken over the past six months. So we're really now just wanting to see prices stabilize at 60 or better. But when we see that, if it's over a quarter um, of, of those prices, you know, we're very rapidly restarting existing well fields, um, which shut in in 2018 and are restarting with a minimal capital investment. Um, we have the similar situation in, in Burke Hollow, not as, as advanced. We still have probably 30 million in capital to build out the I exchange columns uh, in the satellite, but the production well fields, production area one, and now production area two are being completed in terms of the monitor well rings and laying out the patterns for the first production areas. So again, we, um, you know, we see uh, Wyoming in less than six months, Texas probably less than 12 months from a restart decision, which is getting much closer given where uranium prices are today. Very well, Scott. I appreciate the overview and a little bit of flavor on what UEC is up to and maybe some of those conditions uh, to get going there on the ground again. Any other comments on UEC before we go? No, it's exciting. I mean, I you know to be involved with two companies that are as positioned as well as they are, one in a pure mining development focus in a stable jurisdiction. We believe that you know North America and uranium, um, you know, really are are valued in a in a dangerous geopolitical world not just for North American consumers, but globally in the West. Uh, and URC, we're eager to be part of the, the production revitalization, not just in North America, but around the world. So it's really exciting times and, and look for a lot of uh, catalysts, both in the market and, and company-wise coming down the road. Well, Scott, let's leave it there for now. Uh, just final to wrap up here for potential investors who are listening in, the company URC, has a market capitalization of about 200 million US dollars. Why should Uranium Royalty Corp be considered within the institutional family office and retail investors portfolio? Yeah, listen, I think um, if you're a Uranium investor, you're, you're probably wise to hold a, a portfolio of the leading companies. I think all the boats are gonna lift in, in, in this environment we have going forward. But uh, you know, as investors, we should be seeking out the companies that outperform the pack and I think the diversified nature of, of URC, um, almost an ETF in that regard, but 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 very actively managed by by uh, the companies that that we add to that portfolio, really has a good fit uh, in in what's going to be a, a uranium bull market like we've not perhaps seen ever since the dawn of the atomic age. So uh, excited to, to have folks invested in URC and along for the ride. Scott, and the best way for investors to reach out to the company? UraniumRoyalty.com is a website where you can get our full presentation and breakdown of, of the assets. We also have Uranium Royalty coverage at Canaccord, HC Wainwright, and Paradigm. Feel free to, to look at their more in-depth analysis and valuation, but certainly uh, can reach out uh, through the website to me or, or our IR staff. Scott, always good to catch up, keep up the work, and uh, looking forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Andrew.